0: Hey, everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell.
1: And I'm Dr. Neff.
0: And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And Thanks for listening.
1: As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information.
0: Okay. So, welcome back to another episode of Divergent Conversations Podcast. Megan and I haven't recorded in a couple of weeks because I've been traveling. We are back. I am sick. Megan has brain fog. Story of our lives.
1: This will be an interesting episode.
0: (laughs) This will be an interesting episode. So we were bouncing around the ideas of talking about attachment theory and neurodivergence and potentially even dipping our toe into the water of just discussing partnerships and within our own neurotypes and our own relationships. So where do you want to start?
1: Um, Yeah, those are big topics. Uh, I think attachment theory would, Provide the structure to then talk about partnerships. Um, so attachment theory.
0: Yeah. So, Megan may or may not give the bird's eye view um, <laughs> on attachment theory, and um, we don't want to go too far into the the clinical realm of that. But we do like to set the stage. So, if you have something you want to share or mm-hmm. or kind of,
1: yeah. Yeah. Before recording, I was saying like I like doing that bird's eye view, but also brain fog um it would be easier if i had a transcript um and and i think some of this theory will naturally interweave as we talk um but bird eye view um goes back to the 60s john Bowlby and mary ainsworth um and initially it comes from kind of parent-child interactions and that they noticed some distinct patterns of how infants responded when um it's called the strange situation is kind of the big study that's often cited and how infants responded. Um typically mom again, talk about 1960. So there's a lot of gendering and it was typically mom and baby who went into the study and into a room. Um and then mom would leave and come back. And they were gauging like how does the infant respond. Um, for securely attached infants, mom was like a kind of safe haven, a secure base, is what they called. And so because mom was there, the child felt more free to go and play with the toys and to explore and to explore. And there's another, the researcher, there's another person in the room um, with more anxiously attached children. They protested when mom left and then had a really hard time letting mom, or not letting mom, being soothed by mom. Again, typically mom care provider. Um, primary attachment figure we will say that when primary attachment figure came back would have difficulty being soothed by them with a securely attached they they'd still protest but they could be soothed by the by the caretaker when they come back and then with avoidant kind of didn't protest as much when caretaker left um and didn't wasn't as easily self-soothed, but then what they notice is like heart rate still went up. So stress markers still went up. Um, Okay, that's my brain fog version of the strange situation. Where the research got, I think even more interesting is when they started realizing that attachment style continues and started looking at um, adult attachment style. And then that shows up in um, romantic partnerships. And I think that's probably where we'll talk more about today. But it gets pretty interesting when we start looking at attachment theory and neurodivergence. Like some of the questions that come to my mind is, um, do you, you know, can we, does this theory and framework fit for us? Um, Is one of the questions I have. The research shows ADHD and autistic people tend to be more insecurely attached than neurotypical people, which makes sense to me. But again, I wanted to be like, well, how much is that capturing our true attachment style and how much is that capturing other traits that might make us look avoidant or look insecurely or anxiously attached? Um, how is my brain fog version of attachment theory? I
0: think you did a wonderful job. So, you know, as Megan kind of said, attachment theory and is interwoven throughout not just childhood development, but throughout adolescent and young adult development too certainly plays a role in both platonic and romantic relationships and mm-hmm. how you kind of show up and how you um feel safe secure connected to the people around you and i think that gets really um there's some like stuff that's really interwoven here when we're talking about neurodivergence neurodevelopment and we're talking about like feeling safe feeling secure feeling like you're attached or connected to or safe with someone mm-hmm. and this goes far beyond just like that emotional feeling of safeness, right? Like there's also just the ability to, to be mentally safe and to be neurologically safe too. So this is a complicated conversation.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think, um, so one of the interesting things about attachment theory is the idea of the first year, your attachment to your primary caregiver is becomes kind of like a blueprint that that becomes your template. Um, And you tend to continue to attach that way. And it it can vary, of course. And people can, it's called earn security when you earn a secure attachment. Um, But this is where I think cross neurotype gets really interesting. Like if you've got a primary caregiver and an infant who are cross neurotype, typically you're not going to know that in the first year. And what might be attunement to one neurotype, right? So like eye contact, holding, touch, right? what might be attunement for say a neurotypical infant might be dysregulating and intrusive for an autistic infant. So I think that's pretty interesting when we start thinking about early development and cross neurotype and attunement, because that attunement is what's so important for that secure attachment to take root.
0: Yeah. And that attunement can so easily be missed or misidentified or misclassified, especially when we're talking about infancy and you know, any sort of development where the child is not able to actually communicate their needs or have their mm-hmm. needs met. And then it can also play a role for that um, caregiver too, if, if it's really challenging to have that connection with the child as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And then if the, and the caregiver like might be really confused because things they've learned is like, this is supposed to be soothing for my child, but it's not. And then that depending on that caregiver's role, like that can activate their own attachment stuff. Um, yeah. It's, it gets, I think really complex and yeah. What's so what, you? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to, I was like, okay, this is a lot of theory. Um, I was going to ask, I was going to take it to our experience. Cause I know we've both talked about it, like, yeah, we're avoidant. Um,
0: yeah. So. Oh, for sure. I mean, When I started learning about attachment theory, I was like, I think there was a part of me that was probably like, oh, I I resonate with anxious attachment. And there's Mm -hmm. there's some anxiety of like that push-pull kind of mentality of like, I come closer, you back away versus or vice Mm -hmm. versa. Um, But then I realized more and more like by doing my own work, avoidant style made a lot more sense. And, you know, to all the folks who are well, you know, well-versed in attachment theory, a lot of folks that are labeled as a and attached get a bad rap. Um, you know, because yeah. like this person is self soothing all the time. This person wants to do things on their own. They cut people off very quickly. They disconnect very quickly. They look for the littlest thing in relationship to kind of move mm-hmm. away. Um, it's really hard for me to create this like connection. It, it doesn't, it mm-hmm. feels one sided. And I think that mm-hmm. is a challenging label sometimes for people to, um, to kind of be classified under when you start talking about all of the separate characteristics of attachment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say both forms of insecure, um, both avoidant and anxious get pretty bad raps of like anxious on the other side is like, oh, you're so needy, blah, blah, blah. Avoidant, like you don't care, you're cold. Um, and I've I've heard it said that behind every avoidant attachment person is a very anxiously attached person, which I like I was like, I think that's an interesting idea to play with. Um, But also, yeah, I mean, these things ebb and flow more than any attachment grid will show, right? Like um, based on context and relationship and life. Yeah, I. so the thing I'm curious about, Patrick, for me is I've always, before I knew I was autistic, when I learned about attachment, I was like, okay, yeah, avoidant totally ticks the boxes. Now I'm wondering like, okay, how much of that has to do Like how much of that is true attachment stuff, like from my early childhood and and these things? And how much of that is autistic traits? Like, I don't like touch. Touch is really hard for me. I like to be alone. I get overwhelmed by people's emotions, positive or negative. So I retreat. A lot of that is due to my autistic neurology more so than it feels like more so than my attachment. So that's where I'm like, huh, that's, it's hard to tease out what is my autistic needs and self-soothing versus what is like true attachment style.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's a great point. Like how do we differentiate what is neurology? What's attachment system related? What is interwoven and connected? Um, I think about this exercise I did, I was doing this like intensive, um, three day somatic based, attachment training several years ago, D.A.R.E. training. I think it's dynamic attachment repatterning experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the... one of the um, What's the word I'm looking for? One of the workshops or the th- protocols that we were doing was like, all right, come into a room, walk towards the person sitting on the couch until you can tell that they no longer want you to walk any closer to them based on like eye contact, mm-hmm. based on body language, based on posture. And that's like your... Your window of attachment or tolerance and I felt like mine was like so massive because I was like I don't want to make any <laughs> of this eye contact you know like yeah. I don't want to have any of this um connection in terms of you walking directly at me to like mm-hmm. a park this way so that's a, that's something that stands out to me in terms of like chicken before the egg situation like where how to totally. we figure out which yeah. is which or which yeah. is both
1: yeah because like, yeah, same for me of uh, people approaching me feels very intrusive. And yeah, I think probably both because I can then those having those needs. And I would say like sensory needs, because a lot of being around people is a sensory experience. Um, Probably then shapes our attachment style. Um, So, yeah, I don't think it's an either or.
0: What about you for your experiences? You say you felt like. Okay, you're on more of the avoidance style, but if we <laughs> were to take that step back and say, behind every avoidant is an anxiously secure or mm. an anxiously attached. Do you have any examples mm. of that for yourself?
1: Totally. Um. Oh yeah, I want to talk about this too. Like, so there's this study. It's I don't, I don't think it was peer reviewed, but it was really interesting. I it's been a while since I looked at it, but it looked at like infatuation, um, kind of predating. During dating, um, and maybe attachment or con- just connection between autistic and non autistic people. And it showed autistic people tend to have higher infatuation like before dating, and then it decreases kind of more rapidly than neurotypical. So it was like, oh, that relates. <laughs> In college, I had three month relationships, but I always, um, and so there's this idea of like a person can become a special interest, right? And I, I've definitely had that experience. And I would say when a person becomes a special interest, that more anxious attachment stuff does show up, but it's complicated because part of my attachment is to the fantasy of that person. And I would now say, okay, this is going to sound weird. The fantasy. Oh gosh. This is one of the things that I'm like saying and I'm like, I'm not sure what to say. The, the fantasy of being non-autistic, oh my gosh, I'm actually getting emotional. Because in the fantasy, when people become special interests, I can be close to them. And it's not intrusive. And I can feel connected in the way that like I long for. And that's really hard for me because being in a relationship, being close to people feels so intrusive. Um, but in my fantasy especially when people become special interests, I get to experience a non-intrusive intimacy.
0: Thank you for sharing that and just being willing to share that and be really vulnerable about it. Yeah, I I can sense that emotion. I can feel that and I I can really take that in. That makes a lot of sense when you put it that way too because it allows you to feel deeply connected
1: Mm mm-hmm yeah yeah
0: So that like to just name that and put that out there
1: um i mean i don't like emotion they talk about that pretty regularly um i also think the most what's the phrase like the most personal is the most global um i think perhaps even know based on conversations that there will be people that relate to that um Absolutely. For me, like, I have talked about this in writing. This is the hardest part about being autistic is um, the way I put it in writing a couple years ago is, like, my soul longs for connection and my body longs for isolation. Yeah. And that, to me, is the hardest part about being autistic. Yeah.
0: I can deeply relate with that.
1: Yeah, does that, does my emotion bring up any... Anything I'm feeling
0: for you. like protectiveness of you. Mm. And, you know, you mm. hate physical touch. I hate physical touch, but it makes me want to like hug you, embrace you. Mm. But it's, I, I think you just said that perfectly too. Like the soul longs for connection and the body yearns for isolation. I think that is pretty spot on. And, you know, I, I say that so often like, The autistic existence is a torturous one. I think Mm -hmm. that's always my word that I seem to default Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why it's just that intense push-pull of, damn, I want to feel, like, connected, a part of, attuned Mm -hmm. to. And, damn, I need to get away as fast as possible because I am so uncomfortable physically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uncomfortable, dissociated, foggy. Like, I want to, like... I used to say that all the time. Like, I just want to be in my experience. And what I didn't realize I was saying is like, I'm, I'm dissociated and I'm not in this moment. Yeah. Um, and particularly in like social, like the things that you're supposed to feel connected in, right? The big ceremonies and rituals and holiday gatherings. These are times you're in my like supposed to feel connected and around people. And these would be times that I'd feel the most disconnected.
0: Which, you know, in regards to what we're talking about has further impact in terms of like your attachment system too. When Mm -hmm. these big societal uh, norms slash like cultural norms for certain pockets of people and you're supposed to be connected and feel joyous and celebrate and close Mm -hmm. to and present and all you can feel is dissociated or foggy or numb or just not present in any form Mm -hmm. it makes you feel even further othered in those situations where it's like see i truly Mm -hmm. really don't belong here
1: yeah and then the like what's wrong with me narrative comes on of like what's wrong with me like these these people are in this experience why can't i just be in it
0: yeah Ah. yeah It's weird timing that we're talking about this, considering like we're going into like some major holidays and even dates.
1: I think holidays is a hard season for a lot of us. Um, I mean, for a a lot of humans, but I think especially autistic people, there's... Yeah, you know, talk about clashing needs a lot, like in clashing values, like talk about clashing values. Like I want my kids to have memories with extended family over the holidays I don't want to travel. I don't want to be in a room with more than seven people. Like, um, yeah, it's it's a hard time of year for a lot of folks.
0: Yeah, it's a hard time in in some, so many different ways. And then bring in the neurodivergent component. And mm-hmm. there's almost like anticipatory grief. Um,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Like we're recording, what's today, November 14th. I have no idea when this will air probably after Thanksgiving here in the States, but um, it'll probably air before Christmas. And there is anticipatory grief for me, at least. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure for you in some ways too, you've mentioned about your kiddos and, and your, your husband, but like my wife wants to be around her family. She wants to go eat yeah. close and connected and all the things. And there's like this anticipatory grief for me where it's like, I can't show up the way she mm-hmm. would want me to in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And mm-hmm. I also am like conserving energy for a month straight to be able to participate for six hours of my life which will then therefore mm-hmm. drain me for a week of it
1: yeah yeah i like oh gosh i have so many visceral memories we we don't travel as much but like whenever when we did travel to see luke's family um or even sometimes like extended time with my family i like i f- would feel like i became someone else. Like I, I'd become a very irritable version of me. And I, again, I couldn't be present. I couldn't get into the experience. And I'd always do this preparation thing of like, okay, you're not going to, like, you're going to be yourself this time. <laughs> um, Like I don't, I didn't have other, any other words than just like, I don't become myself. And I didn't understand what was happening. I just knew that anytime, especially if we traveled, like I became a version of myself. I really didn't like, I'm not normally a very irritable person, but I certainly um when I have lost my routines and I'm traveling and I'm like all of the things so I I hear you and it's like the grief of I'm not gonna I know I'm not gonna be able to show up the way I want to for my wife's family like I feel that and like for for you is that I remember for me I'd be like okay I just need to flip a switch I can do it like is there that kind of like belief you should be able to just flip a switch and show up the way you want
0: Totally. I mean, and I think that can even be enforced sometimes like or reinforced through messaging that you receive. And I know like before maybe my wife and I really knew each other or, or like what I needed and what my system needed and that it wasn't just being selfish or like, I didn't want to participate where it would almost be like a pep talk of like, you can show up for one day of your life, like you can do that. And sometimes Hmm. I will even have to say it out loud to myself, like, give myself like this uh, you know man in the mirror speech where I look at myself and I'm like yeah you can do this you can like handle six hours you can manage this you can make it through whatever the event is not specifically just talking about her family because that's not that's not the truth of it it's really any gathering and and then so often just you know continuously having to rely on just either one alcohol or two uh complete silence and isolation and mm-hmm. I would become also like irritable short um one to two word answers when people are talking Mm -hmm. to me people would label that as like antisocial um Mm -hmm. dismissive rude whatever labels we want to throw onto the um that presentation and that just further makes you feel disconnected Mm -hmm. because i think for me Mm -hmm. and i don't know about for you i then go into like this internal dialogue of like trying to force myself out of that reaction where it's like yes stop reacting like this this is not how you want to come across like it's all Uh you have to do is like just respond for two sentences and maybe that will break down this like internal barrier but then you Mm -hmm. just default back to the same and it feels harder and Mm -hmm. harder and harder to then like really show up in a way that you want to
1: Mm. I don't know. I, makes sense. It makes so much sense. And I relate to that so much. The like, okay, don't do it this way. Do it this. And like, that becomes part of the stress, right? Of like this, it, again, this idea, I should be able to do something different here. Yes. Um, yeah. That to me, that is where like discovering autism has been really helpful because I, I was genuinely just so confused and of course reverted to like, I'm a bad person or, um, no, it's like okay. I understand that I've I'm in a part of my nervous system that is shut down, and like that's what's happening to me right now. And it it doesn't mean that I like feel awesome about the situation or the engagement, but I I understand it, which is yeah. helpful.
0: I agree, hundred um, percent. The understanding may not always be helpful in some ways, but it is helpful mm-hmm. in other ways. Where it's like, at least you're no longer doing this like existential search. For
1: mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. the hell
0: is happening here? And yeah, yeah, you just default to like, okay, this is happening. Doesn't make it mm-hmm. any more awesome. Like mm-hmm. the experience is still painful, but at least I understand why it's painful. I think that helps a little bit.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think you know, I'm. I feel like I talk about this a lot here. I'm such a fan of like self-attunement through self-narration. Of like, if I can narrate what's happening. That is a form of like radical self- attunement, so I think that opens up the opportunity for self-compassion in those moments of like, okay, this is a hard moment versus like I know for me what it was before is what's wrong with me? why can't I just get in it? now it's like, okay, this is a hard moment, this is what's happening it's a It's a very different self experience in those moments
0: so true, so true. We diverged mightily. <laughs>
1: i mean it's all it's all like more connected clustered around attachment and intimacy and yeah it's interesting i um i'm not a dual dualist in the sense of like i don't like to separate kind of mind body you know that kind of descartes dualism that took hold and shaped much of western history but when it comes to this conversation I, i actually find the dualistic lends a little bit helpful in the sense of like there is this really very real split I experience of like what I long for and then what my body can handle um
0: yeah
1: and I do think that of course that's going to shape attachment then and attachment style
0: absolutely I also think you know just on that in this perspective too, it's like for those of you listening and wondering okay am I just now forever labeled Avoid an attached and secure anxious attached you can actually be in different attachment styles with different mm-hmm. people different relationships and those can evolve based on learning healing growth introspection understanding so this is not a like black and white end all be all situation either
1: yeah absolutely absolutely And um that's where like an ebb flow kind of hold on attachment theory i think is really helpful yeah like there is an attachment quiz out there where it'll like map you out on quadrants like both your parents um friends and then romantic partners kind of what how you lean in those different relationships which i think that's interesting but yeah the idea that like we can we we can heal secure attachment and um and i think it's gonna look different for autistic people like i actually i feel really securely attached to my spouse um my children i would even say my parents um it doesn't look the same way i this a ton of space i um if you were looking at me you might not say i'm securely attached you say avoidant but i i do think i am securely attached in those relationships
0: i actually think that's the perfect like depiction of what we're trying to talk about right now mhm is that from the outsider's perspective, right? If you're just taking into consideration attachment theory, which there's a lot of there's a lot of um, things that are missed and missed marked opportunities there as well in attachment theory. But if we're talking about like if we're just specifically looking at it from attachment theory perspective, and you're saying, oh well, Megan's disconnected, Megan's on her on their own, isolated, whatever, must not be secure attachment. But what I'm hearing from a neurotype perspective and a neurology perspective is it's very secure if the people mm-hmm. on the other side are also understanding like mom needs a break, mom needs to read, mom needs to self-soothe, mom loves us and is in a different room. Like that takes into account the sensory needs, which I think is mm-hmm. where we try to we're trying to create that much more complex picture here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's where like I would love to see attachment theory kind of adaptive for neurodivergent folks of like what are the kind of the markers? Um, because I think like most things, you have to go more into the subjective experience and less on and rely less on those behavioral markers.
0: Right. And I think that's so important and to, to make a notation of too. Um is to create some evolutionary language and um vantage points on terms of how we view attachment theory for neurodivergent folks, mm-hmm. because if our neurotypes are different, if we're talking cross neurotype relationships, if we're talking about, you know, a, a neurotypical parent and a, a neurodivergent kiddo or vice versa or partnership, there's going to be all of these new, almost like things. And what's the word I'm looking for? There's going to have to be new Ways to really, I don't want to use the word adapt, that's not the right word, to become more comfortable within relationships, Mm -hmm. understanding that not every single relationship is going to look like this, you know, textbook definition of what one Mm -hmm. needs to
1: look like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for both partners and parents who aren't also um, specifically autistic understanding, because like, I'm sure you see this a lot, right? In cross neurotype partnerships where you know one's person's need for space like that can activate a whole story for the other partner of like this this person's pulling away from me um and oh i lost the thought there there was there was a thought but it it flew away
0: it's probably because i took so long in that convoluted way of saying what i was saying um
1: I, i think it's all my brain there
0: you're right though i mean and i think like if we're talking about okay this person's this person needs space. This is what their sensory system needs is space. Mm-hmm. But their attachment system doesn't need space. Like in, in mm-hmm. their bot embodied experience, this is actually like the safest place for them is to have that mm-hmm. space because that means they feel very connected to you to be able to take that space. But then you have someone who might be on the anxious and secure side where it's like, whoa, this person's pulling away. They don't love me anymore. They don't care about mm-hmm. me. Let me come closer. And then odds are you back even further away and it creates that anxious avoidant Uh, uh
1: the yes what is it called see these are the things brain fog is so interesting like things i used to be able to pull into mind dance something pattern it comes from eft um the pursuit distance or dynamic um is it kind of a classic because here's the interesting thing when when you're insecurely attached, you're actually more likely to partner with someone who's also insecurely attached, but from the other side of the road. So, like, if you're avoidant, you might partner with an anxiously attached, vice versa, which then, of course, there's going to be like some messy dynamics that show up. So, that distance or pursuer is what's talked about of like, there's the pursuer. Because for ang- we haven't talked a whole lot about kind of anxious attachment, but for anxious attachment, when there's an attachment, kind of insecurity they they need closure like they need to work it through with the person the avoidant person needs space to regulate to be able to come back to a conversation but that can create the uh, pursuers coming closer because that's what their attachment needs to down regulate the avoidant person's distancing because that's what they need space to down regulate so the and then the pursuer distance or dynamic because it yeah
0: around around we go
1: been around around we go yeah yeah i so i'm i'm married to someone who's securely attached but like introverted and does really well with alone time and i realized the reason all my other relationships didn't work before i met luke was they weren't as independent and so at some point my relationships always made a turn where they started feeling really intrusive and really not good and so that's been interesting typically to like avoidant people don't get together romantically but for and i I, again i wouldn't say luke and i are truly avoidant but we're very independent and that's not like it's not a classic pairing you see a lot but i realized like i absolutely needed someone like that like i wouldn't work with someone who wasn't also had like high need for independence and were separations okay um yeah
0: yeah I think that's a good point and it's good to know what you both need and then to be able to find it is is I wouldn't say it's a rarity because it's certainly not but it does take a lot of like introspection and discussion and communication about needs too and then each partner being confident in their ability to offer that and offer themselves what they need I think that's equally as important like Mm
1: -hmm.
0: knowing what you each you've mentioned this before when we're talking about partnerships but like just the fact that partnerships, you should not always be solely reliant on your partner for joy, happiness, contentment, relational like, connection. Like You've got to get that elsewhere too. And mm-hmm. I think you have to have the confidence in both of yourselves and each other to be able to have that space to also have your own interests, to also have your own friendships, to also have your own like, downtime where every single second doesn't have to be um, interwoven.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Mm -hmm.
0: what are you thinking about that
1: I was just thinking about how helpful it would be like you know when people are making life partnerships like they know about things like attachment style and neurotype and like how these things overlay and like just think about how helpful all these lenses are and how like rarely I I think the, the younger generation they're they're getting there but how rarely we enter into these partnerships with these lenses that I think yeah. can really unlock so much understanding and um, alleviate a lot of pain.
0: For sure. For sure. I don't even think I knew the word attachment until I was like 26, 27. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I really didn't know much about my own neurodivergence at that time, if any at all. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, through partnerships like Doing a lot of trying to figure out like what's working, what's not working. Why are certain Mm -hmm. relationships typically ending? What are, what am I missing up front or vice versa? And I think for like my marriage, you know, we're going on 10 years of being married at this point in time. A lot of it at first was doing that dance of like that Mm -hmm. anxious, avoidant like situation. And I would say my wife is way less avoidant or anxious, probably more secure than, than a lot of folks. But ultimately, when I would push away because I needed to push away mm-hmm. and I didn't know why I needed space or I didn't know why I needed to to isolate or disconnect, she wouldn't go anywhere. And I think mm-hmm. that created that feeling of safety of like, mm-hmm. now I can start verbalizing like,
1: mm-hmm. this is what
0: I need. This is why I need it. Mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with you. I just didn't realizing like I need a lot of time to mm-hmm. be alone and to be autonomous and to be independent.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that. I love she didn't go anywhere that and that's that's a secure base right like exactly she stayed secure she was there and she and she wasn't punishing like when you came back it wasn't and you need to be punished before we can reunite
0: exactly Yeah.
1: yeah yeah I don't know if this relates I'm curious so yeah dating I dated a bit um and uh, yeah, again, I'd, I'd hit a part like where it started feeling intrusive, and I'd get, oh, this sounds really bad. I'm yeah, just, sure. this, I'm gonna have a vulnerability hangover after this episode, Patrick. Um, I would, and now again, I understand it, but when it started to feel intrusive, I would get grossed out by my partners, and it, and once it turned, it was it it was really hard to unturn it. Um, I now realize I think it was kind of a sensory like you know, it's, I have misophonia. So like, like I joke with, with my spouse of like, I, I just won't be in the same room when he's eating cereal. Like, cause I will forever be like grossed out by him and it'll, it'll linger for a while, but it would do this thing where it would turn in my relationships and I wouldn't be able to recover. And I think it was kind of a sensory grossed out meets intrusion. And I couldn't then like recover from that feeling of intrusion. So I I definitely had a point of like, am I ever gonna find a long term partner? Is is marriage ever gonna work for me, or am I always gonna have this experience of it turning? Um, and then right, all or nothing. Like it once it's ruined, it's it's ruined. D- did was dating hard for you?
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually glad you named that. So, um, I had similar experiences where like if we were to, if I was dating, um, I was really I wouldn't use the word infatuated, but I was definitely much mm-hmm. more excited about the relationship and the person at first. And then Same.
1: high, high infatuation early. High infatuation. Yep. Yeah. So totally. like,
0: and you probably then come across like more charismatic and you come across like more uh-huh. interest. You well, come special
1: interest energy, right? Like special interest energy plus new like romance energy. Like, oh my gosh, it is a powerful combo.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is, again, another example of where we could say attachment or neurotype or neuro- mm-hmm. neurology, right? Or the the combination of the two. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who are attachment um, therapists, oriented therapists, would say like the avoidance style, that's very typical where like you would get really infatuated. You'd be really excited and then you'd start to pull away. You'd start to find little things about your partner that make uh-huh. you no longer feel connected to them so that you could have your autonomy and your freedom and your independence and you could no longer be connected. But if we we're framing it from the, the neurodivergent perspective that you are mentioning, like the sensory component and the intrusiveness and the feelings of like, oh, my body no longer feels safe. It no longer feels like excited. It no longer feels secure in this. That's very, it's, that's exactly what I think is missing from a lot of this literature. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's where to return to what I was saying earlier, which I can now revisit without so much emotion. Like, I think that's where fantasy, I, I think a lot of us spend a bit of time in fantasy. And I think like that's where fantasy of an ideal relationship or an ideal person, especially in that early infatuation period becomes so seductive because in fantasy, we we aren't sensory creatures. Um, in fantasy, we don't have that turn like that turn when there's a sensory unpleasant experience. Um and I and I think that makes can make relationships hard, right? Like we are infatuated, many of us might be fantasizing. Okay, I'll speak from my experience. I'd get super special interest energy, so curious about the person. I think the person would typically like like my curiosity and my interest felt. Um, I I don't have don't have the word, but then I would do a lot of fantasizing and idealizing and building it up. No relationship can live up to that. No reality can live up to that. Yeah.
0: And then when it doesn't, and Mm -hmm. you're you're no longer in that special interest energy, and maybe your sensory system is being more activated because of mm-hmm. some sort of partnership or relationship. And then all of a sudden, it the pendulum swings almost the complete opposite way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder even like we're talking a lot about this from an autistic perspective, which I feel like we tend to frame most of this podcast mm-hmm. from. But I wonder about the ADHD type too, where stimulation and, you know, really... Oh my
1: gosh, yeah,
0: absolutely. Factor, right? And like... Yeah yeah
1: no that's a huge like um okay I'm gonna do a little detour I was talking with some of my children um and I, I could just tell their affect was a little bit different I was like are you sad and um they were like no and then they were like mm, I feel sad but I don't know why and then I, I looked and I was like are you understimulated?" and their eyes opened up and they're like yes I'm understimulated. And I've started noticing, you know, I've been married 15 years um, that like times when I have like started to feel discontent in my marriage. And I just think everyone experiences seasons of that. If you're married for a long time, what I realized is like, oh, I was understimulated. And that lens of understimulation has been really helpful. Like, I'm not discontent. With my spouse, I'm like experiencing under stimulation. Okay, I, I need an infusion of creativity, or some sort of stimulus. But I, I think that happens a lot for ADHDers. Is once they get stuck get once the relationship's not as stimulating, it can be tempting to let me go look for that elsewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that a hundred percent. So, you know, stimulation seeking, right, and then when we have that dopamine, when we have that adrenaline rush, when we have all the the feel-good chemicals in our body, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, that same person, that relationship's not, There's the stimulation's missing. Mm
1: -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it must
0: be something wrong with the relationship. Right, right. How how often can you be in partnership where it's stimulating 100% of the time? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's possible.
1: Right, but I think when our... 80, like especially if we don't understand our like need for stimulus, yeah, exactly that. It's so easy to go that narrative of like there must be something wrong here because right. we're yeah. So this okay, kind of a rabbit trail, but also little, I think important because so we're both as far as I know from you, Patrick, we're both in monogamous arranged partnerships. um A lot of neurodivergent people are polyamorous or so have different, different structures, and I think this is perhaps one of the reasons, especially for. Um, autistic ADHDers, like if you have a frame um, that supports that, I see why that works for a lot of people because you you get the new relationship energy and you have the secure base when well done, right? When there's a lot of good intentional conversations and the framework around it is set up well. Um, so just, it kind of, I thought about that of like, yeah, that, that makes sense why that that works well for so many folks.
0: Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Um in a, in a lot of ways. I think that's why my marriage works really well even though it is a monogamous one. It's non-traditional in a sense where people will look at the fact that we spend a lot of time apart from one another and say like mm-hmm. is everything okay at home? Um yeah. Yeah. I see that. Patrick's traveling by himself all the time and you're never with him. Or she like has so many friend groups and so many book clubs and so many things that she's involved in. And I don't often go to those things or to those events or to those parties Mm -hmm. or any of those things. So there is this like level of autonomy and independence and almost separateness within the marriage Mm -hmm. relationship, despite like neither one of us very often feeling disconnected from each Mm -hmm. other.
1: That, like, yeah, I'm smiling so big right now because, like, yeah, that's that's my marriage and that's why it works. Um, does it work? Does it work for Ariel?
0: Yeah, for, for Ariel, it works. I think there are definitely times she would prefer that I would definitely come to an, uh, a get-together or a party or, like, I could at times be more spontaneous with my answers instead of mm-hmm. nine times out of ten being like, no, I don't want to do that. Um, but... <laughs> Um, I think it does work for this stage of our lives. I think the first couple of years, it was challenging for her to be mm-hmm. like, what the fuck is going on? Like, my
1: mm-hmm. yeah. husband
0: doesn't want to come to anything with me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, it's interesting. As soon as I asked that, I was like, I'm like, oh, of course it works for Luke. But Luke is also my, my spouse. Um, I might have him listen to this before we air. I just to make sure, you know, <laughs> he's cool with everything um he's a very very like intense people pleaser. so i also realized like and one thing i've been encouraging him to do again this might sound controversial um i've been telling him like hey i both celebrate and grieve my like autism diagnosis you get to do that too because like it impacts our our relationship and he's started slowly. Like, um, you know, there's a concert in town that he was like, oh, yeah, I did, I did have this thought of like, it'd be nice to like, go to that with you. And i know that that wouldn't happen. Or that if, if we did that, that would be really hard for you. And I'm, I'm encouraging him to explore his grief around this. So I'm also realizing. Um, yeah, that it, I, I do think it mostly works for us, but also that there can be grief for the spouse. And I think it's so important we let our spouses experience that without it feeling like that's ableism. that's just, That's just part of the complexity of human relationship and emotion.
0: Yeah, and you've you've actually mentioned that exact scenario on here a couple of times now. Um, and I think it's important, like it's not only important, it's like paramount, to be mm-hmm. able to really help support your spouse have their own emotional journey um within partnership about what their experience is like because i'm sure there are times where ariel's like man I, i'm going to this thing tonight and there's going to be a lot of people there and i might be one of the only partnered people mm-hmm. that is there solo mm-hmm. and that can feel like you know there's something wrong on the home front when Mm -hmm. I'm traveling all over the damn worlds by myself and people are always like, oh, are you married? Do you have a partner? Like, where is where are they? Like, do they come with you on these events? I'm like, yeah, they do. They have four weeks of time off and I don't and Mm -hmm. like, they hate traveling. So this is just the balance that we have found that works for both of us. And I think Mm -hmm. it gives me that that stimulation and that sensation seeking that I need and that freedom and it also it, it just works. So I do think finding out what works is important. Like you said before, have we had known this earlier on in our lives, it would probably save ourselves, our partners, our, our friends, a lot of pain, but I'm glad to have arrived to it now. And Mm -hmm. before it was too late to do that. Mm
1: -hmm. I think what I'm feeling like just a lot of gratitude that we both found people that like, Because I think for both of us, it would have, it takes kind of unique people to be able to be married to us. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yes. And I'm really glad we both found people for whom we've been able to build a life that's secure and also like works, works with our our sensory needs and our, and, and I think sounds like works for our partner's needs as well, mostly.
0: For sure. I like the mostly caveat because that's probably (laughs) the case.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to like be, yeah, it totally works for, I'm sure it, yeah, mostly.
0: This will be a good episode to then have both of them on here. Like we talked about. We've talked
1: about that. We have talked about having, yeah, do you want to do like a four way conversation?
0: I think it would be pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. (laughs) I think that'd be really interesting. Um, yeah, I'll try to see if Luke's up for that. Um,
0: no pressure. But yeah, I think, again, as so many of these conversations are, there is so much nuance and complexity here. And it's not just attachment style. It's not just neurotype or neurology. it It's everything. And I think we have to assess and, and look at everything when we are... <laughs> Trying to figure out not only our clients, you know, struggle areas in terms of their relational relationships and their, their attunement, but our own and our friendships and our partnerships with our families, etc. And really taking neurodiversity into account and into consideration when we are looking at relational dynamics.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Other thoughts? This is or- our
1: entity I Yeah, I don't feel like I have anything to add to that or kind of feel like we're at our awkward goodbye time.
0: I like that it started awkward. We both were kind of foggy. We both were kind of cloudy. And then it developed into what I think was a really good, powerful conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm just grateful for you, too, in terms of if we're looking at attachment and and friendships because we haven't seen each other in a couple of weeks and Mm -hmm. we're both not feeling great, but. I'm pretty happy with how that turned out.
1: Yeah, same, same.
0: All right, everyone who's listening. So Divergent Conversations is out every single Friday on all major platforms and YouTube. You can follow us on Instagram as well. Like, download, subscribe, and share. And goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.